0: Incoming transmission from the Babylon Project. Welcome to the Babylon Project. This is our last Best Hope for Trash. This is a rewatch podcast for Babylon 5 featuring two veterans of the show and one newbie. I am your newbie host, Justin, and here to help me along are my co-hosts Jude and Anna. Jude, Anna, what song plays while your hated rival is killed by your more beloved rival?
1: Hmm, that is a good question.
0: I know. I just thought of it. I'm very pleased with it. And I feel like
1: it deserves more consideration... Then like the two seconds, I'm going to give it here, but.
2: I'm going to go with harder, better, faster, stronger by Daft Punk.
1: Ooh, that's a good answer. Yeah. Okay. So I'm just going to give you the answer that came to my head immediately. I think there's probably, I think there's probably a better answer out there, but I'll tell you the one that came to my mind immediately was um, I Want It All by Queen.
2: It's also solid. Yeah, that's good. good. Uh,
1: I couldn't tell you why. But that is that, the one that, that jumped straight into my mind.
2: That was uh same with me with Daft Punk. I just had to look up the order of the words. <laughs> yeah. I feel Spotify. like you don't actually have to.
1: I feel like as long as you've got those four words in any order, people know what you mean.
0: Yeah. <laughs> or you could just say, like, the a- the song with all the adjectives.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I feel like that'll, that works.
0: All right. Speaking of murder, tonight we are discussing... Uh, I think what might be two of my favorite episodes of season three, at least one of them, we are going to be discussing season three episodes 20 and 21 and the rock cried out, no hiding place and shadow dancing.
1: I got and the rock cried out, no hiding place, which is legitimately one of my top five episodes of the show. Uh, So I'm excited Uh, and you should be, too. We are. The title opens with an ominous as fuck title card. Z minus 14 days. Uh, one of my all-time favorite memories of this podcast is watching this episode uh, in a watch party with Justin and their reaction of like, "What does it mean, Z minus? What does it mean?"
0: <laughs> I, I think my exact response is, "What the fuck is Z?" <laughs> yeah. And then, and then it was then me looking at the me, me looking at the list of episodes. Oh no. <laughs> Yeah, just the, <laughs>
1: the pure, like, unfiltered panic in, in response to Z minus 14 days was extremely good, and exactly, I think, the reaction it was aiming for. So it was very cool.
2: I, I think I replied with something snide, like, a letter.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I actually always assumed that this was, like, a stupid, like, tacky hack of T minus, but it turns out, uh, I was not giving JMS enough credit, uh... NASA uses a number of different letters for the minus thing. They use E minus for when something's about to like run into a comet or have another interstellar encounter or L minus for launch. There's various letters that they minus in a countdown. So
0: the practice stems from a military thing where it's like D like D-Day. So like D-Day would be like D minus three or H hour H minus or plus four was used as like a way of like, before and after this, okay, what hour are we in of this? Because, like, for invasion plans of World War II, there would be, like, specific hour-by-hour things. Yeah. But, yes, go ahead.
1: Yeah, but I just thought that was, <laughs> it was interesting to know that JMS uh, was not pulling it out of his ass, and it was actually a, a at least a quasi-real notation. Live and learn. The episode starts with Ivanova giving a... Uh, Captain's Log style voiceover. Uh, We see Garibaldi assigning telepaths to various ships in the league. Then Sheridan in the CPK war room staring grimly at a board full of flashing lights. Uh, Franklin walking an empty hall like a pointless loser that he is. Brother Theo with his dashing as hell beard talking to a congregation and getting a letter that he looks real unhappy to get. And then Jakar, who wants to give every telepath a Narn bodyguard, like the noble motherfucker that he is. His speech here is so good. Ivanova says, they're perfect, they're safe, we've already promised them protection. And he says, but they could be even more protected if they had a Narn. My people are willing to sacrifice themselves, knowing that their deaths will will provide safety to the rest of our people and, and our, everyone else's. If symmetry were any better, I, th- I think that... We'll just have Zathrus put the line in. I can't do it justice. I really don't see why this is such a difficult request, Commander. For every telepath you send to one of the other races, I send along one of my Norns as bodyguard. If their tactical value is as great as we suspect, shouldn't they be protected? Their safety's already been guaranteed. I'm sure that will be a great comfort to their grief-stricken families when a shadow agent carves them up into spare body parts. With my people
2: around, this will not happen. My nuns are willing to go into great danger, risk sacrificing themselves for you, knowing that in turn, we
1: serve ourselves. If the symmetry were any more perfect, I should think one of us would break into tears.
0: I have decided that Jakar must be dealt with.
1: My favorite part is that while Jakar is is launching this extraordinarily noble line, it cuts very directly to Londo carrying a cup of Kelpy Gross Blue Cubes saying, (laughs) it's time to solve the Jakar problem. It's time to do something about Jakar. It's a brilliant cut.
0: What do we do with a gnar named Maria?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what they're eating. It looks like uh, a hybrid between <laughs> tofu, jello, and kelp. It's the most bizarre. It's one of the gr- most bizarre
0: foods we've seen, we've seen before on the show. We've seen it before in the show, though. They've yeah. eaten it at breakfast before. Yeah. Like well, in, in the-, the officer's mess. Yeah.
2: And- What's funny here, though, is that every time I watch that, I'm like, "Ooh, what is that?" And can I have some?
0: I feel like
1: that's just a judgment on your character more than anything else because it doesn't look appetizing. Um, my favorite part, though, is for sure where Londo takes a bite and then looks at at uh, Veer and goes, here, can you, you you can you do the line the uh, by this you you call well done? Oh, you call this well done? <laughs> yeah, basically. And the look that Veer gives him is so. Filthy, where he's just like, man, fuck you, and just swaps the cups, and Len Lando continues to eat, as if, like, as if Veer would give himself the better portion. Like, it's just a great interaction. But yeah, he decides that now is the time to deal with Jakar, and he wants Veer's help. In receiving, Ivanova runs into brother Theo, and contrary to his usual calm and collected and benevolent demeanor, he is a... Real sourpuss. He warns her that the sound she's about to hear is his grinding teeth and not to worry about it just when a group of humans arrive from earth. All clearly other religious men, a Buddhist monk, a Jewish rabbi, an Islamic imam, and a a Baptist reverend. They clearly all know each other uh, and are familiar with Brother Theo, particularly the, the last one, the reverend, with whom Theo seems to have a sort of Brotherly antagonistic relationship,
2: they're like best frenemies.
1: Yeah, they they spend the whole time, they never say anything nice about each other, but you get the sense that they've known each other a long time and they actually like each other. But it would kill brother Theo to admit that out loud, it would physically kill him to say something nice about Will out loud.
0: I die for this character not to have a care.
1: Yeah, it's extremely funny because brother Theo to this point has never looked ruffled by absolutely anything except the literal death of one of his favorite students. Like that's what it took to make him look at all disheveled. And then you get this guy rolls in and he looks like a verklempt middle school student. You know what I mean? Like he looks extraordinarily put out by the existence of, of this guy, uh, which is fantastic. As they leave, to be settled into their temporary, a word that Brother Theo is very excited about, quarters, uh, we see Rifa and the tall hair crew arriving behind them. Back at the CPK picnic table of war, Sheridan has his serious business dad face on when Delenn arrives and tries to lighten the mood by telling him that Ivanova uh, called him cranky and descri- and begins to describe her attempts to make sense of this word. Sheridan, completely lost in thought, does not even notice her extremely charming lexical flirting here, uh, which is a borderline sin. Delenn, and by which I mean Mira Furlan, is just, she's throwing so much charisma at this scene.
2: It's so good. And it's
1: so good. This scene, it, I mean, I don't have enough good things to say about Mira Furlan's performance in this scene. I think you might have to be, not ju- not even dead, you'd have to be something beyond dead. To not be a little bit charmed by her in this scene,
2: it's it's up there with the motor butt,
1: yeah, scene, yeah, because it's 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 incredibly relatable, especially if you've for if you are or know anyone that has ever learned English, the way that she's relating to the fact that there's like she's the words define themselves and they go in a circle, it's just great. The whole scene is fantastic. She more or less then shanghais him into coming to dinner with the religious leaders that have just arrived by telling him that she's already promised he'll be there. And if he doesn't come, he will shame her because obviously Minbari do not lie. Uh, <laughs> and Sheridan is flummoxed and irritated, but like in that in that good way, like in that way where you're like, oh, you dirty rat. He he's not that put out by it. But he, he's clearly a- enjoying the attention from Delenn here. This is just like highlights how good their their flirting is. It's really hard to imagine. I, I'm trying to think of another heterosexual couple whose flirting I've enjoyed in television more than <laughs> these two. And I, I legitimately can't think of anything off the top of my head. Same. And really, it's, it's, it's like 75% Mira Furlan, too. Because Sheridan mostly just acts like a confused dad. Uh, when she flirts at him, so.
2: And, and I love the scene too, because she's using a, like, flirting tactic that has made him laugh in the past. Mm -hmm. Like, that, you know, we have an on-screen incident of, like, you know, her joking about language working at cheering him up. Yeah. And so she's trying it again.
1: Yeah. Back in Londo's quarters... I will clarify here. I should have done this at the top, but I'm going to do it now. I don't care. The A and B plots are pretty tightly entangled here in a way that is surprising at the end, which makes separating the A and B plots, they're not narratively connected, but they are
0: thematically connected,
1: connected still in a way that means that separating them is not possible. So I'm not going to try
0: Hook into my hell.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, back in Londo's quarters, Veer arrives to tell him that he's just learned that Lord Reef is on the station. Uh, but Londo is not surprised. Oh no. Londo has a plan and Veer has a part to play. A part that he's clearly going to hate, as Londo tells him uh, that his plan is to get Jakar to the Narn homeworld and gives him a task to do before meeting with uh, Londo later. Uh, he is to go to Jakar and tell him that he's gotten intel that Natoth, his former aide who went missing during the bombings is a captive below the capitol building that housed, that formerly housed the Kari. It has to be Veer because Jakar would, be, would believe it from no other Centauri. He knows that they helped them in the past and he is the only one that Jakar would even possibly believe. Veer hates this. Clearly hates this and goes so far as to refuse. Something I don't know that we've ever seen Veer do? We've seen him protest and we've seen him complain, but I don't think we've ever seen him straight up tell Londo no, I will not do this. To which Londo manages to find another heel to turn. As we will discover later, this is not there is a degree to which this is not a genuine uh, let me put it this way it's not clear how much this is or is not a genuine statement from Londo. He threatens to expose Veer, Veer's crimes as Abraham O'Linconi, to turn him in as a criminal, to turn out his family, destroy their honor, uh, bankrupt them, and then have them driven naked through the streets and, and various other horrors, which obviously Veer knows that Lando can do if he wants, and which is in essence, putting Veer in a position where he can't say no. Poor buddy. It's honestly it's it's a shocking scene because it's such a fast turn. And it's you've we've never seen Lando be that I mean he's he's usually he usually saves that degree of vindictive cruelty for Jakar. And to see him turn that on Veer is shocking. And the degree to which it's actually what he would do versus a performance for Veer is not clear because he's highly motivated to make this all work. And whether or not this is all a performance or not, he's trying to get this done. So it's, it's just not clear to me. Uh, I think it's all a heel turn whether or not he whether or not there's you know wheels within wheels going on here i think it doesn't change the fact that he said that to veer um, Yeah,
0: uh-huh. which
1: is deeply fucked up so then we get the explanation for what what's going on here rifa is rifa's arrival uh apparently has to do with the arrival of a ranking minister on babylon 5 who has arrived to Settle the dispute between House Rifa and House Malari. This dispute, he says, has gone on long enough and is no longer serving the interests of the Centauri Republic. And the emperor would like to have it ended. But neither the emperor nor the minister particularly give a shit who comes out on top. He's simply there to assess which of them is going to win. He's going to make a determination which of them should be the the victor in this conflict and the other and which of them is going to basically be the loser? Rifa is arguing that Londo has lost his way that he's weak, and all these other things and it's pretty clear here this is why Londo has suddenly shown an interest in capturing Jakar uh as Rifa is leaving, Jakar arrives they trade not at all sexy stink guys there's no no funny bits about flirting in this interaction here. This is just pure hate between these two these two guys. No swords tr- no no swords crossing in this one. <laughs> Meanwhile, poor baby Veer goes to Jakar's quarter, uh looking more than anything else like a fawn covered in blood wandering into a wolf's den. He stammeringly tells Jakar he needs to talk to him about Natoth, and Jakar, without a word, gestures him inside. This whole interaction is done silently by Katsulas and he manages to convey a shocking amount without saying anything you get disgust scorn curiosity all in like two expressions it's it's a short scene it's like maybe 15 seconds max that Jakar is in this scene uh but he it's a great example of how much he can do with just his face underneath that latex. It never fails to, to astonish how agile Katsoulis manages to be facially while wearing that, that make that prosthetic. I've, I mean, I, I, I can't name another actor that wears that much facial, that much prosthetic and manages to be that emotive. It's, I mean I'm sure there's there's examples. Uh no, I take that back. Help me out. Uh discovery. Yes, yeah, Saru. Saru. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Doug Jones. Doug Jones, yeah. Doug Jones could be wearing a a literal pile of bricks on his head and could make you cry. It's it's I'm sorry. Doug Jones is, is I mean, we're not doing a, a Doug Jones fan appreciation Welcome podcast to our here. Doug Jones appreciation podcast, but we should because that man is freakishly talented and does not get the kind of appreciation that he deserves. I think Discovery finally people are starting to notice what an un- unreal talent he is. But yeah, Saru, I think, I,
0: think, I think before then, like he had, like he got he got a lot of appreciation from Shape of Water. I mean, a little like, bit. But, Doug, Doug, like, but Saru like, but is definitely the more mainstream thing. Yeah. yeah, us monster fuckers, no, no Doug Jones. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Among certain communities,
1: Doug Jones is very well known. But I think that's the only other example I can think of of someone who can just, you know, Tarzan around on your heartstrings, while under that much makeup. There were some scenes in the last season of of Disco, for example, that. Where he was just, you know, wordlessly conveying the kind of emotion that Jakar does as well. Anyway, Londo, taking his turn with the minister, is presenting his case for his house. He says that he's ready to make the case for his house over house rifa, but with deeds and not words, by ridding the court of a problem. What problem, you ask? He's not going to say. He's very vague about it. It's a problem that's been causing trouble for the court. And it will prove that his house is the one that should be the victor. Veer, who has arrived at this point from delivering his lies to Jakar, looks positively green with disgust, or whatever color Centauri turn when they're about to barf with fury and misery. The minister agrees that if Londo can deliver all that he promises, that would indeed be a compelling argument. As they leave, the guard at the door listens attentively, as Vera harangues Londo for sacrificing Jakar just to advance his career. At the dinner that Delent Shanghai Sheridan into, he's telling the various visitors how hard it is to get news between the embargo and ISN being full of propaganda. In response, Will, the Baptist reverend, opens his Bible in which he's concealed a box of unlabeled data crystals. I'm pretty sure <laughs> that you shouldn't carve a hole in a Bible if you're a reverend. But maybe this is, I mean, I don't know, maybe it wasn't his favorite Bible, maybe, I mean.
0: So I do want to, I do like want to give some historical context for this. Hit me. Is that like carving stuff out of a book is a very, it is a very traditional way of hiding things. Especially for a reverence Bible, because it's not going to be inspected. Mm-hmm. It's like, it, it's, it's it's not going to be like inspected through customs. Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: So there's, like, a long precedent for this. See
0: a Bible, and yeah, yeah, this is, like, I, like, you'll most commonly see this in, like, spy stuff, with, like, somebody cutting a, cutting it out, and you, like, you glue some of the pages together so it doesn't, like, fall out, but, like, it's a thing that is, like, yeah, it's a reverence Bible, you're not gonna go through it, because there is some, there's some stuff with, like, it's a, it's a cover, basically, that, like, you can exploit. (laughs) Because, like, customs agent isn't going to look through a ministered Bible. Interesting. Okay.
1: Yeah. Uh,
0: Cool. Uh, But, yeah. On the
2: other hand, I'm pretty sure you are supposed to label the data crystals.
1: God damn it. You stole my joke. (laughs) I was just literally (laughs) opening my mouth to make that joke. Yes. He hands him, like, an unlabeled container with an unlabeled tray with, what, four or five unlabeled data crystals. And then he tells them what's on it, like, this one's from, you know, the this one's from the guy in the Middle East and this one's from the guy in uh Asia. Uh, notably, however, the West, they leave out the poor monk who I guess just is along for the ride. He didn't do any of this work apparently. It was uh all the uh the the imam, the the rabbi and the the reverend that did all this work. I don't know. Maybe being a pacifist means you can't be a spy. I don't know.
0: I no, I I think it's more they either cut that guy's content or they just figured hey we don't have him long to actually give lines. Yeah. But But hey, that's western that, that that's eurocentrism for you.
1: Yeah, right. He has some really great lines here
0: about like doing what's right in dangerous times. Or the exact line that I noted down was um I'd rather do something and make a mistake than be frightened into doing nothing. Yeah.
1: It's a great line and he's he's a great actor. He he I I really appreciate that he has a charisma about him that is, it's hard to do the, to authentically do that, like, reverend energy.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And
1: I think he really nails it. That, like, I am accustomed to speaking to the back of the room and giving life advice without it coming across as really, like, phony or chest puffy. But he, he has a really delicate touch with it and I like it. Jakar, meanwhile, goes to Baldi to ask for a favor. He needs something smuggled to Narn Homeworld about yay tall and yay wide. I very rarely enjoy scenes with Garibaldi in them, but I really like this one because Jakar is so earnest in his request. Uh, he wants to get smuggled to Narn Homeworld and he's very like you got The you got those data crystals to homeworld. Why not me? Uh, You know, just stick me in a box and and Baldi is just like, "Can I help (laughs) you?"
2: (laughs) Surprised Just like blink, blink, blink. blink. (laughs) (laughs) Casillas' delivery on that is so good.
1: Yeah, yeah. His delivery in that moment where he's just like about yay tall and yay wine. like it's just it's great yeah uh the whole scene is good and you do get that moment where where baldi is like you you get that sense how much he cares about jakar but also is is trying to mansplain to the revolutionary leader that like you know you're wanted on that planet and and jakar very patiently is like yes dumbass i'm i'm aware how <laughs> my planet was bombed into the stone age and I'm a wanted, you know, uh, ex, uh, Plutical leader in exile. exile. Like I grasp the concept, but that's why I'm coming to you for help to get there. So are you going to man up and help me or what? Like, uh, yeah, it's, it's funny. Um, but also very frustrating. I, I'm sure at the time it didn't read that way, but it does now. Okay. Poor veer.
2: I mean it's it's probably there for exposition, essentially, to remind us yeah. as viewers who may not have seen that episode because mm-hmm. that was how TV worked, that yeah. your Jakar is wanted. Yeah. But it, it 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 just it should not be coming out of Garibaldi's mouth.
1: Yeah. Ivanova would have been a better person or Delenn, probably. Uh Veer, who historically has not had great luck with elevators. He seems to have lots of awkward encounters near them. Uh steps onto one with the same guard as before who has this weird dramatic button push moment. It's extremely strange. I don't understand who he's vamping for. He like holds the button in front of his chest in a really awkward way and then like hits the button and it like lights up really brightly. I don't know what the fuck he's doing. Um, I don't know who he's performing for, but when the elevator opens a whole, like a whole fucking gang of Centauri jump Veer. And I need to talk about this for a moment. I, I love, I love Veer. Uh, we're, we're all very clear on that fact. Uh, I have nothing but respect for Veer and I respect the compliment that is having like six dudes jump you. That really says like, they feel like they need to have a whole, a whole crowd of dudes. To to put a bag on your head and, and drag you into a weirdly spotlit room, but but it's Veer. It, it's Veer. You could have had like <laughs> one with a sharp stick and had the same outcome. Uh, I really feel like Rifa's tipping his hand here that he's he wants this way too badly. If he sends six guys to to grab Veer, like that's too far. That's too much, my, my dude. Uh, So yeah, they drag him off to a room, a weirdly spotlit room, where there's like one working light bulb. So they plop Veer down in front underneath the one working light bulb. And uh, there's Rifa sitting there, and he wants to know everything that is going on with Londo. There's a quick interlude scene here where the Reverend Will asks Sheridan for permission to hold an open church meeting, and then he and Theo spar a bit, and it's adorable, uh, the only thing you really need to know is that they're going to hold an open church meeting and that it's not going to be quiet because Theo's really salty about the fact that it's going to be joyful. And Will doesn't think there's enough joyfulness in- around here. Veer, meanwhile, whimpers. No, really. <laughs> That's what the subtitles say. It's accurate, but it's a little of the meaning that the subtitles just say whimpering. Uh, poor Beer. <laughs> Reefa tries to bully him into giving up the information, but not that hard. Um, he even tries to like persuade him, but he, he he's like, hey, you know, you should give it up. You have a bad life. I could make you wealthy. No, you don't. Immediately say yes. Okay, I'm gonna have the telepath rip it out of your brain. Like, take a <laughs> breath, man. Give him like an eighth of a second to decide yes or no. Why even like? M- why even take the time to try and sell him if you're not gonna give him a chance to like? Make a decision. Jeezy Pete's. Talk about in a hurry. This whole thing, Rifa is like real desperate. Got a real desperate wants it too bad vibe this whole time. Yeah. So they sit this telepath down and I swear to God, I can't prove it because the telepath in this episode is uncredited, but I'm pretty sure it's the same motherfucker who has been the Centauri telepath every time we've had a Centauri telepath. (laughs) Because he's got that same weird face and that same, like. Anyway, I think it's the same guy. Because he's got the same, like, Centauri telepath, like, I'm doing the telepathy face.
2: I would not be surprised.
1: Yeah. So he goes in for the telepathing, and we get a flash. He's like pulling out the memories of Londo giving the orders to Veer. And uh, when he's done, Veer is like obviously shook by this experience. And Rifa, for reasons passing understanding, aka he's a named character and you're a supporting character he's like keep him here until we're done which makes no sense there's no no possible logic under which you do not at this point you know like put a hole in veer and then chuck him into a bathtub full of flesh dissolving chemicals uh <laughs> or just space him or just ditch him in down below somewhere i don't know Feed him there's to the park, right there's I'm glad they did. Well, no, Let's no, be clear. They get
2: their stomachs pumped on a regular basis. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> There's.
1: I love Veer, and I'm glad it didn't happen. I'm just saying, there is no political reason why you and don't they, they kill Veer. They even try
2: to get past it. Yeah. They they, they, they throw some horseshit answer in the future. Yeah. yeah.
1: We'll talk about that. But like, no, no. In any in anything within like a, a, a country mile of reality. Veers in a dumpster with, you know, a hole in his head and crap in his pants. Like, bless him. I don't, I'm don't. i glad he didn't end up that way. I'm just saying. Anyway, that night, Will walks into Sheridan's... I have a problem with the scene. What is Will doing? Just casually strolling into the captain's personal office in the middle of the fucking night?
0: He was sent by Delenn. Yeah, I, I want to imagine that he was not like... Either either Delenn or Theo prompt the visit. Yeah. I mean, somebody had to
1: because he's just like, doo, 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 just casually walking into the dark captain's office. It's just on my way as I'm walking around. I mean, yes, there's no door apparently on the captain's office, which is a whole nother thing. Uh, but like, just wanders in the office like, oh, hey, funny to run into you here in your office in the dark. Uh, where Sheridan is like reading reports and drinking tea. And they have a nice little chat uh, about responsibilities and blah, blah, blah. And this is another good scene where the actor playing Will manages to hit that, like, that note of this is a person who's accustomed to talking to people about their problems without it coming across as condescending or too, too much it's really easy to make characters who are there to give advice or to direct another character to make that feel super heavy handed. Yeah. And okay. I think the writing here is really good. And the performance here is really good. Cause it really does feel like the, like not natural because it's not, cause he's kind of in there like eh, push, just giving them a little nudge, but it feels natural that he's, that's what he does. Yeah. And he's got the right charisma for it.
0: Yeah. yeah. And, like, there, there's a very, like, um, as somebody who grew up in, like, a uh, Protestant church, like, th- this, like, the approach that Reverend Will takes is very familiar to me. Mm-hmm. And yeah, um, specifically, there's a story he talks about about a friend of his who had come to help him clean up his place. <laughs> and he asked the friend, why are you always over here helping me clean up my shit? When your place is just as bad,
1: it was his his wife before they were married. Oh yeah, his yeah. wife
0: before they were married, and she and her response is because that way I'm fixing, on, I'm working on something. Yeah, she and says I, I
1: love to- this story. She says when I clean up my place, all I've done is swept my floor. But when I clean up at your place, I'm helping you.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's
1: it's a great it's a great little you can see the dim little bulb start to <laughs> flicker on in Sheridan's yeah. head.
2: The neurons start firing.
0: Yeah, I think this is something that like we see a lot about how JMS depicts religion in Babylon Five. Like, and, and religions are depicted differently in Babylon Five. Like, his version of 23rd century Judaism is it looks different from what his idealized version of 23rd century Southern Baptism looks like. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it, it's like the thing that Reverend Will is emphasizing here is specifically community, like like that that it, that, like as human beings, like and in his belief of like what Christianity is, like helping people, is, like you know, in service to others is the most important thing we can do. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, it's it's a really good thing that just like hammers on that bump there, um, and it's a really it's another one of those things, especially because. Like John does the the thing of like I I'm not looking for God and and the reference like I don't have to I don't I'm not selling you on God if you if you've got to go for that you'll know it
1: yeah 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 no and, and then it gets to the end of the conversation and he's just like it becomes clear that he's here to talk about Delenn, not about God yeah like and then he 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 drops the like she loves you you know and and. And, and Sheridan's like, all right, all right, that's
0: enough. I'm done.
1: <laughs> yeah, not comfortable with this conversation now, like like a fucking teenager. Um, <laughs> God, Sheridan is such a dork. The man's
2: been married, too. Come on. It's like... Imagine if, if this is
1: how bad he is at this the second time around, Anna Sheridan must have had the patience of a fucking saint imagine how useless he was the first time he went through this
0: god he must maybe maybe it's one of those things of just like Delenn has just an entirely different energy than anna because it seems like it seems like with anna they were just two fucking nerds yeah that's like like it's an entirely different like thing like yeah from what it sounds like like anna and john they did not have personal and work lives in, like intersect at all and i think part of that might be that Sean doesn't know how to do that yeah yeah whereas <laughs>
1: yeah. whereas delenn it was like it's like their whole lives merged mm-hmm. they're they're both the one they're, they're military leaders together like it's a very different situation that makes sense
2: and and there's also the aspect of I, I feel like john is always trying to be very like respectful of the fact that delenn is from such a different culture
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And
2: I think that that makes him like not uncomfortable, but that he's like always trying very hard to like not be a jerk because he's human and she's Mimbari.
1: Yeah, there's a fuck ton of baggage there uh, that I'm sure didn't ex- w- wouldn't have existed between two people from the same fucking species.
0: Yeah, especially because it's like, or at least in B five. From what we gather, like interspecies romance is um, not as common as.
1: Yeah, it's not like.
0: As we might expect. (laughs) There, I said Jim as a coward.
1: Yeah. It's not like in Star Trek, where, ironically, Star Trek is the more believable one, a more believable series when it comes to everybody wanting to fuck all the aliens. (laughs) Anyway. Uh, let's try and do this in a reasonable amount of time. Uh, Z minus thirteen days. I have okay. I say this and then I immediately go into another sidebar. Um, I have another beef. I need like a little sound effect for my my sidebar beefs. Uh, <laughs> do the Narns have a name for their world? It's always called like the Narn homeworld, but like that can't
0: be what they call it. They like when we when we see them refer to it as a proper noun. They call it homeworld. Yeah. So that's what I
1: imagine I imagine they have a word for it that just trans that is well, why don't we just call it that?
0: Yeah, uh, who knows. So, it might it might be a thing where it's just like it literally translates to homeworld. Well then why don't we call I, it that? I mean it feels, if they have it, a word for
1: it, they would we like Earth doesn't yeah. translate to homeworld.
0: But that would also be a narrative convenience where where it's like we don't want to add another proper noun to the show. Another
1: goof. Well, all right, well fine. Well, I'm gonna supply one. I've decided to call it narnblat. That's that's my suggestion for the Narn Homeworld's name.
2: It okay. it feels like the the if you've ever read the Diane Duane Say so You Want to Be a Wizard books. I have. Um, They're
1: fantastic. And we should do are a podcast fantastic. about those books now.
2: Uh we should. Um, but they are fantastic and there's a thing of like that like every place is Earth.
1: Yeah, that's right. I like that I forgot that. Yeah. Because It like in when you translate it, like every planet just every species just calls their home, like that's what this is what our planet is. And when you translate it, it just comes out like Earth because that's the nearest concept for it,
2: yeah. And that's that's what it kind of feels like to me of like, why would we, you know, why would they have a special name for it in you know, in English? Yeah, they just call it home world,
1: yeah. No, well, I like Narnblatt better. I, they, I'm sure they have a Narn word. I'm sure they don't call it homeworld. They call it something. Let's give them the due respect to use their proper noun for it and not some generic homeworld thing.
0: I think that it's like very much this show tries to avoid having... E- like It tries to avoid having a lot of alien names that sound like they have a bunch of apostrophes in them. Yeah. No, I'm sure that's um, what it is. They don't want to do I, this... Yeah, I think it's, it, it's it's a science fiction thing where you're like... I will either we want to name everything in its proper language, or we're just going to call everything by like a relatively normal-sounding name. So it's just there's less processing space taken up on the viewer's memory.
1: Yeah.
2: We also I don't think we ever see the Narn language being spoken on on screen. We don't. We do not. Which the only the only Centauri we really get is in is in knives with the centauri opera
0: bless <laughs> we're, we're gonna get off the sidebar real like it, it quick but i i want to pose a theory for why we don't hear narn spoken a lot through the the cultural genocide that the centauri executed through
1: how interesting a lot,
0: through, through the the century of occupation they had there that the narn language is not primarily spoken Mm, it's it's a it's a sign language because in the narn resistance you don't speak because you can get caught but if you're doing hand signals i i'm wondering if it's like if maybe like through it like there aren't as much like native speakers of the narn homeland of like the narn language Uh and like Maybe it's something where it's like, it is primarily written and signed. This is, this is like, I have no basis in context for it. But besides the fact that it's like. But a hundred years,
1: a hundred years of occupation. I mean, it took a third of that to wipe out, nat- to, to more or less wipe out native speakers in a lot of indigenous cultures in America. So it it's not at all preposterous. And the, the Centauri were dramatically more aggressive about their suppression methods.
0: It's something that I've like, I could compare it to something like maybe there's, I we don't ever really talk about language in like the like, apart from Minbari in B5 really. Yeah. Like we don't ever or unless mm-hmm. it's like a plot point of like first contact where you're running it through like a universal translator and yeah. you're having to just wait for it to decode mm-hmm. it. But maybe it's something like where there are. there's a galactic like, you know, there's the galactic lingua franca, which is probably Centauri which is probably what a lot of people speak, or like you know, there's a, there's a galactic trade language that is spoken more post B five, like post season five, maybe like when the Narn, like you know, I don't know how this ends up, but maybe like when the Narn are able to reclaim their planet, there is a restructuring and an attempt to recreate the Narn language. Like, say, with Hebrew in the 20th century. That's fascinating.
1: I like that idea.
0: I am thinking about this way too much for something we have no textual <laughs> evidence of. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But no, that's cool. Also, I have, been, it's, I'm still the 48 hours post vaccine, so I'm still loopy.
1: <laughs> no, I like that. Yeah, that, uh, that
2: makes sense to me. I mean, certainly, certainly the, the aspect of the Narn language probably being.
0: Suppressed. Maybe not a
2: dead language, but a very ill language. Yeah, that makes, that makes sense to me. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it might be in that place where, like, Gaelic was about, like, 50 years ago, where it was, like, where the government is, like, or where the Irish government was, like, we are going to take steps to, like, make sure that Gaelic is being taught in schools to tr- to make sure that this language is saved. Yeah. But, unfortunately, this entire fucking nuking the planet from orbit with asteroids uh, puts a uh, damper on that. Yeah, yeah, probably
1: didn't help much. Okay, let's, let's try and wrap this up here. Uh, <laughs> all right. Anyway, over on Narnblatt, we get a CGI view of the bombed F- to fuck Kari rebuilding, our first, I think, of the surface of the planet, and then we see Jakar staring out, marveling at the condition of the world. He mar- meets with a contact, who IMDB says is named Jadan, who provides him with support to enter the underground tunnels. Elsewhere on Narnblatt, Rifa is touring a drapery convention and bullying (laughs) a local functionary and demands seven of his best guards to help him capture Jakar. At the CPK picnic table of war and flirting, John and Delenn are watching the map of attacks and Delenn agrees the attacks make no sense. Sheridan says, it's alright, it's just nice sometimes to have someone to share it with. Sounds like somebody's been listening to the good reverend.
2: Good boy, Tom.
1: They then go and watch a completely goddamn no- nonsensical 3D map of the attacks on a shitty CRT monitor. And we're supposed to follow along as they see some kind of pattern. Enhance. Enhance. Do you see what I do, Delenn? No. Nobody sees what you do, Sheridan. It's <laughs> it's a goddamn blurry blob on a cr on a, like... A monitor that looks like it came out of the 70s. It should be. No, sort of... it's
0: it's a screenshot from the game Star Wars Rebellion.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it looks like it would, it would charitably display Pong more clearly than what we're looking at. They eventually let us in on what they're seeing because I don't see shit. The shadows have been corralling refugees into one area to make mopping them up at one time easier and more terrifying. In conclusion, Sheridan says, it's what I'd do. Uh, if I were, you know, the bad guy, (laughs) this scene is so good because Sheridan's like literally says, you know, if, if I were the bad guy, it's what I would do. And Delenn is having absolutely none of that. She's not on board with this whole think like the enemy thing and drags him off. Yes, John. Of course, John. I understand John, like ignoring him and throwing bored platitudes at him as she hauls him off to the church meeting to give him some religion. Because he obviously has strayed <laughs> from the path. <sighs> on Narnblatt, Jakar leads his men into the tunnels. While on the station, Londo opens the doors and punches out the guard. There's been a problem, Veer says. Dramatic music. Tensions rise. What's happening? Suddenly, Rifa and his seven guards surround Jakar and his men. We then cut to Will's church meeting where he preaches about how the enemy is fear and ignorance and hate. Rifa tells the soldiers, with their preposterous guns that look like a model of a Klingon bird of prey fucked a spot welder backwards, <laughs> take Jakar and his, and his men captive, but they do nothing. They just wait, while Jakar produces a hollow projector of Londo, who tells him that the whole thing has been a double cross. The guards are loyal to House Malari, and they will do nothing from here on out. He's cut a deal with Jakar. In exchange for the lives of 2,000 Narns, they get to kill the Centauri who orchestrated the bombing of their world. As this revelation unfolds, Will asks the crowd to rise and and begin to sing in one of the most amazing uses of diegetic music of all time. It's so good. To the joyous and uplifting singing of No Hiding Place, we get a slow-motion scene of the Narns chasing Rifa through the tunnels, and beating his ass to death. Leave his face and head intact. They will be needed later for identification, Jakar says, while putting a data crystal full of incriminating information in his coat. As the crowd on B5 sings, mostly, Linear tries his best, but he's like the kid who doesn't know the words. He can't find the pamphlet in the, the, in the tray, in, the, peer, in, the, in the, uh, the pew ahead of him, so he just stands there awkwardly mumbling and looking confused. Raise your hand if you were that kid. in Church.
2: <laughs> it's like it's like if if he just moves his mouth, then then he fits in.
1: Yeah. Meanwhile, your your mom or your dad reaches down, the pew and punches at you. Just keep singing. Um, the Narns, meanwhile, beat Rifa while Jakar looks on, then walks away. We cut then from the red of the tunnels beneath Narn to the red of the blood-covered data crystal, as Londo explains Rifa's crimes to the minister. In the background, Veer looks disgusted and pissed. The minister is incredulous, but Londo points out that Rifa was not a traitor so much as an opportunist, who even planned to kill the minister. In the hall, after they leave, Veer lays into Londo, but Londo is ready. He knew Rifa had a telepath. It was the only way to pull off his trap and keep Veer safe. You're not important enough to kill. Nope, that just sounded like a Bulgarian carpet merchant or something. I don't know what that <laughs> sounded like, but not like Londo. But I'm important enough for you to lie to, Veer says. This is a... Oof. Our, our good buddies are not in a good place here. Um, Bad. Londo is losing his last ally, pretty obviously. In our closer, John and Delenn are on the White Star, where Delenn takes him to see what resources he now has for a counterattack now that they've identified a uh, a weakness or a a a place where they can make their strike and as they come out of hyperspace they see an entire goddamn fleet of white stars and john looks more aroused now than i think we've ever seen him <laughs> making out in front of a fleet of warships is a very it's specific so kind of king but we firmly established on this podcast that we don't kink shame. So I'm glad they found each other.
2: Frankly,
0: I'm into that. That That yeah. is my kink
2: as well. I mean, at that point, I'm always just like, kiss, 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 yeah. kiss,
1: kiss, kiss. So that's my, that's the summary, <laughs> air quotes, uh, for No <laughs> Hiding Place. I, I feel like I had notes and they're all, okay. I, have, I feel like I have you one. said all of your notes. I have a few I have a few notes. Um, the whole a Buddhist, a Baptist, a Jew, and a Muslim walk into a space station thing feels like the setup for a joke. Uh, but it's a weirdly Star Trekian vision of human religion., uh, the idea that all these dudes are like buds out fighting totalitarianism together. It's not that that's impossible today that you could have four people of those religions like working together. But it's much more of like a TNG kind of thing than a B5 thing to have that kind of idealism.
2: I I would say that it's actually specifically a B5 thing Um, and has to do with how religion tends to be handled on the show. Yeah, I think it's less about... I don't think that any of those characters would be there on TNG.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. I think I mean more that like TNG is more utopian. Mm-hmm. Whereas B5 is like, no, oh, in point of fact, humans are I mean, fascist fucks. And so the idea of like humans evolving towards like the religions being more cooperative and not less is a much more TNG like much more Star yeah. Trek concept.
2: But but B5 takes a very utopian view on religion in a lot of ways.
0: Yeah, it's it does. like the, it's the one thing it's like the one thing that it takes a utop- utopian view on.
2: Which is yeah. hilarious because JMS is an atheist.
1: <laughs> yeah. I think that's why. <laughs>
0: from what it's yeah. so, I mean, from what it sounds like, he like JMS is like he might be personally atheist, but he has, he's he's a very respectful person of religion. Yeah, yeah, which which is cool. And I, and I and we know that like the the reasons that the the reason that these ministers are working together is because they are all united in a common cause, which is getting that fascist fuck out of office. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we need to go down this rabbit hole. Eric fucking Avari.
2: I know. It's so great so, to see him. So so the so the rabbi
0: is played by Eric Avari, who um most like he's been in everything. He is the he is the quintessential bit actor, uh, primarily for when you need uh, for when you need an actor you can code as Jewish or Middle Eastern. Yeah, and and you need somebody older. He is most famous for being like the, uh, cure, or, the no, curator from the mummy, like, right? He's the curator yeah. of the mummy. I'm like, is that really what he's most famous for? And and the famous. pharaohs.
2: And then he, and then, and then that character survives and is in leverage. Yeah.
0: Um. And <laughs> he, and, and like he's appeared in like everything. I think he was in Stargate. He was in. Yep. Like he's just in everything. He was.
2: He was Daniel Jackson's father-in-law in yeah. in Stargate. He's delightful. He is
0: um, not he, hilariously. He's not Jewish. He, he's the son of a Zoroastrian, um, which is something that I just wow. Find. That's
1: that's a curveball. So he's not any <laughs> of the religions he's ever played on television.
0: Yes, I don't know if he's practicing or anything. I just like I was looking at his Wikipedia page, and apparently, yeah, apparently his yeah. Uh, he is like Indian film royalty.
2: He's he's always such a joy on the screen. Yeah, yeah.
1: he's got he's, del- he's got a great presence. Yeah. I have one line in this episode that stood out to me that I want to call out.
0: Is it the San Diego line?
1: No, although I do appreciate that JMS fantasized about nuking uh, the city he lived in while well, he before he wrote this ep- this uh, I show. I love that
0: he like he lo- like his, his references for like horrible disasters are all like within an eighteen month period. And then San Diego, the New King of San Diego of the 22nd century. Yeah. It's like Hiroshima, Nagasaki, Dresden, things that all happened in 1944, 1950, 45. It's all within like an 18-month period. And then San Diego.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Unless Dresden got something happened to Dresden, you know, again, again, which would be a shame because I've been to Dresden and I've seen the work they did to rebuild it. And they did a really great job. That would really be a bummer if they, like, re-firebombed it. No, the line I'm thinking of, remember her, I've still got the claw marks. Veer, <laughs> my my friend,
0: <laughs> what,
1: or should I say who, have you been doing?
0: Um, I want to imagine that, like, all three of the aides have fucked each other at some point. <laughs> yeah.
1: I. So, my only objection to that, my only objection to that is, I have to imagine, my like, my personal headcanon, like, Lanier has to be ace. Like, I, I can't... I, I see,
0: personally, it's like, it's one of those things that are like, I imagine some sort of relationship being between Lanier and Veer. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which might just be, like, quasi-romantic. I mean, we, we, know, I expect- we know
2: that they're pals. Yeah. We know but, that yeah. they meet up for chemically inoffensive yeah. drinks every afternoon.
0: Yeah. But yeah, no, like, just, Matoff pegged uh, Veer. <laughs> and that's, and that's like that's canon yeah.
2: I personally enjoy the, the fact that at least the I, I feel like this episode solidifies that at least the Mumbari religious cast do not have a concept of devil's advocate which makes me very happy mm-hmm. because when mm-hmm. when John is like well you, you have to think like the enemy Dylan is like oh hell no
1: yeah she's real offended by that idea
2: so I, I feel like this probably this has to extend to like being fundamentally against the idea of playing devil's advocate.
1: Yeah, which makes me. I would say that that tracks. Yeah, I think we we already called out uh, Lanier being unable to like get into the singing, like just being bam-fuzzled by like, the whole thing, like,
0: weirdly shuffling.
1: <laughs> yeah, and just sort of looking around confusedly and down at the paper. Like I love, that, and I love that like. Lanier is incredibly capable. Like, Lanier put together a motorcycle in like 18 hours. But he like this this earth religious ritual where all you have to do is sing is just like fucking beyond him. And I like that. I like that the the things that Lanier can't comprehend, one of them is gospel music. Like, it's just it's just a little too much. It's just like his social anxiety just can't can't hang with with singing in a, in, out loud in a uh, in, in, in a public, in a group.
2: I, I would like to call out one of my favorite lines, which occurs in this episode, which is when John is talking to Delenn and says that he hasn't been sleeping well and that uh, he's been having the kind of nightmares that make your hair stand on end. And Delenn goes, <laughs> well, that explains the Centauri. <laughs> The lad has a great sense of humor and yeah. John
1: is just not like picking it up in that scene. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's really good. Um,
0: just from like a structure point, I don't want to talk about this episode of how it's such a good, like wheeling and dealing episode. Mm-hmm. Like for, from, from like how it's revealed that everything came out. It, it's, I think it's one of the best points where it's like, you get to see that all the work, like, JMS like you know takes all that painstaking effort to show his work and it all just comes out so perfectly here yeah Yeah. I mean that's more the Londo plot line I think the White Starfleet coming at the end is not as predicated but but that's but it's like like it's built it's it's tying up like so many like loose ends on the show into one very cohesive plot line and I really appreciate it and it's I honestly wish the show was more of this yeah yeah. Like I wish it was less sci-fi problems and it was more politics problems, but with the sci-fi trapping and all the work that's been done. It's t- this is tying up stuff some of the stuff that's been going on for like two plus years. Yeah. Like we saw Rifa in Signs Importance first. Yeah. Yep. Like, and so he's been he's been a, a ball in play for two seasons now. And just getting that all tied in in this Wonderfully constructed, Knot is, I and mean, it's it's yeah. I can easily see why it's one of your top five, Jude. Like this episode is really good.
2: Uh, plus, it has that absolutely stellar uh diegetic music and choreography along with it.
1: Yeah, that we- that cut where it goes from the the singer starts that no hiding place line, and immediately to Rifa just like just. So good, booking it, coat flapping, feet sliding around as he books down that tunnel is—it's such a buck wild. I, I, I would love to have that kind of moment, that creative moment where you think up a scene like that. Because I have to imagine JMS sitting in the editing base, seeing that come together, must have felt like a fucking titan. Like, yeah, imagine writing that and then seeing that come together and just being like, I, I can. I could fuck a mountain right now. Like, (laughs) like that that must have felt tremendously good to see that come together. You know what I mean? Yeah.
2: So I have have one plausible reason for why Veer was not shanked, other than the, you're too unimportant to kill, which is that the minister would have clearly cottoned on uh, to something being amiss if Veer had, like, been murdered. Oh,
1: yeah, that actually makes sense. If yeah. you're
2: because both of them were trying to like do something shady to get the minister's blessing, like without yeah. the minister cottoning on to them doing something shady.
1: Yeah, and if <laughs> if Londo's attache ends up facehold in a dumpster, that that <laughs> looks that looks that Suspicious. raises some suspicions. Whereas if. Londo takes a, a a political face dive. They can just buy Veer off to shut him up and shuffle him off till later. And then they kill him later when it's more politically expedient.
2: Exactly. Yeah. All right. I'll buy that. Plot hole solved. Cool. Got, some, got, no some, pro- got some spackle on that. Not unlike your walls. <laughs> All right,
0: Anna. You're no prizes in the mail. Oh, I do have one last bit. And Bob from And the Rock Crying Out No Hiding Place. Uh Francois Giraudet, who played the minister Minister Verini, uh didn't do a lot else, but he played Jorel in the New Adventures of Lois and Clark.
2: He also has amazing hair.
0: Yeah, he, yes. he, he does. He
2: his, he his has, crest
0: is very impressive.
2: He has quite possibly the most majestic hair of any Centauri we see on this entire show. It's it's luxuriant. Yes. All right. So here's episode 21 of season three, Shadow Dancing, written by JMS and directed by Kim Friedman. So when we left off uh, in the last summary, 10 minutes ago, we were at Z minus 10 days. Well, we're, now we're at Z minus 7. we Yeah, Uh, we open with Delenn making a desperate appeal to the League for them to assist in the war against the Shadows, not just defending the station uh, type of assistance, either. She wants them to, like, actually commit themselves to fighting. Uh, they are not thrilled about weakening their defenses, but Dlen reminds them that they are all in this together, and it is time to put up or shut up. She leaves for their deliberations and comes back to only the drowsy ambassador waiting for her. After a tense moment, he informs her that she'll get everything she asked for. Woo. Everyone else is just off talking to their governments to arrange the logistics. Phew. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's it's a it's a tense moment there for a second. Meanwhile, Sheridan is in the War Council room explaining what. I'm sorry, d-
1: I. Would you like to try that again?
2: TPK picnic table
1: the cpk war room would be an acceptable one okay. uh, the cpk picnic table of war would be another one but i i,
0: I believe there i believe it's also like the c the cpk t- uh, the cpk table of alliance yes
1: okay. also also accurate
2: so Sh- sharon is at the cpk picnic table of the war alliance thank um, you got to get all of those words in there explaining what he and delenn figured out at the end of last episode that the shadows are preparing for an attack on the sector where they've herded all of the refugee ships, like the absolute war criminal dicks that they are.
1: Not that they like to make out in front of fleets. <laughs> I mean, that's what they also figured out at the end of last episode.
2: Also that. Ivanva and Marcus will take the White Star and scout the area, while the rest of the fleet gathers and waits. They are not to engage the shadows without further orders... And have a dim chance of survival, uh, estimated by Sheridan at 50-50 at best. The two head out in the White Star, and we get a bunch of good, good Ivanova Marcus content. First, she tells him the old Egyptian blessing. Then later, the two (laughs) meet up in the White Star bunks, although to everyone, here's disappointment they are not there to bang. Uh, They have a good chat, though, and Marcus tells Ivanova a Mimbari greeting that he says means... My words are inadequate to the burden of my heart, but actually means you're the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. Ivanova remarks that she would like to be stationed somewhere with big four-poster beds for once, and Marcus remarks that he likes big four-poster beds, too. (laughs) Ivanova follows this up with a look that could curdle milk. And he takes the hint and fucks off so that she can get some sleep. Or not, as she is also, like Sheridan, defeated by the stupid diagonal beds. Ivanova figures out how to adjust the tilt level, sort of. She gets it flat and then slides off as it tilts the other way instead. She resorts to making a bed out of every single pillow and lies down, just in time to be called to the bridge.
1: They give Ivanova all the really good physical comedy in this show, yeah. And I really appreciate that the person they give it to like the, the crankiest person of of all the main characters like her bitterness at existence far exceeds anyone else's on the show and I really like that she gets all the the physical humor that feels appropriate.
0: I think it's one of those things where you like where physical comedy just works better like if the character performing it is somebody who it, like It's funny that they're uncomfortable in the situation.
2: Like Londo. Londo with the sword and the bug. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yes. Yep. Yep. Back on the bridge, Marcus informs Ivanda that a shadow scout ship has appeared. And the White Star is in a bind. They're about to move out of Eclipse and be spotted. But if they fire up their engines, they'll also be spotted. Physics decides for them between moving or not moving. Uh, as they move and become visible, and the scout ship starts to send out a warning signal. Ivanova orders Marcus to jam it, and we cut away to Sheridan and Delenn on the command ship. Everything is going, going according to plan there, at least, and Delenn shows Sheridan where they'll be tracking the battle, in a Grey Council-style room with VR screens all around. Back on the White Star, the Shadow Scout is attempting to flee, and Ivanova is in pursuit. They take it out of action, but it rams them and disables their engines, just as the rest of the Shadow Fleet jumps in. Yay! Ivanova and Marcus signal the fleet, and uh, their repairs are completed just in the nick of time, as the Shadows notice them, and the cavalry arrives simultaneously. A epic space battle ensues, with both the Shadows and the B-5 fleet taking heavy damage. Ultimately, the remaining Shadow vessels jump away, leaving Sheridan and Delenn to view the graveyard of ships surrounding them. They have triumphed, but at a huge cost. Back on the station, we learn that for every one Shadow ship taken out, two Lee Gormanbari ships were destroyed. And Marcus reminds everyone that this time they had the advantage, since they knew where the shadows were going to strike, and it's only a matter of time before they strike back. Later, as the command staff meet, Sheridan is hit by a wave of headache—we've uh, all been there, buddy—and <laughs> reminds everyone about his kosh vision from last season. They figure out the first two pieces of it, um, Ivanova saying, do you know who I am? And Sheridan dressed as a psychop. The other pieces remain mysterious. The man in between is searching for you, and you are the hand. The Star Furies are put on alert, uh, looking for the inevitable attack by the shadows, and Sheridan welcomes Franklin back to Med Lab. We'll, We'll get back to that soon, don't worry. Finally, he heads off to his quarters to sleep, watched over by Delenn as part of a Mimbari relationship ritual. Delenn wanders his quarters and picks up a snow globe. Just in time for the door to open and this week's station visitor to come in. Anna Sheridan, John's presumed dead wife. Delenn drops the snow globe and it shatters, mirroring her vision from War Without End. Z minus two days. And throughout all of this, we've actually had a (sighs) B-plot, but it's about Franklin. First, he interacts with some question mark, question mark, question mark, tourists. Question mark? Question mark? From on the station? Earth. Who go Who visits?
1: Yes. Sorry. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but this this plot point is fucking insane.
2: Why are they there?
1: Who says we're from? I think
2: maybe they. We maybe are, they are the were rich.
1: voluble supporters of a fascist dictatorship, and says, first of all, decides to visit a place that has seceded from your fascist dictatorship. <laughs>
0: First, why? And second, how? Maybe it's just really hard to change travel plans. <laughs> I'm like... They couldn't cancel their tickets after they booked them the previous year. Yes. That's you don't want to lose,
1: don't lose those... That, I mean, you can't get those miles back. I mean, they obviously would have bought them with miles because you're traveling with a family. You don't get that... You can't spend that kind of money.
0: I mean, are, are, is it if, it? if it's... Do miles change? Is it light years now? I don't know. Or is it miles and you just get, like, exponentially more of them now? <laughs> yeah,
1: maybe. It's all to the power. Yeah. Um, I'm just so confused. Like, we haven't really, like, thought about that. But, like, we have people from Earth just, like, flying on out. And that seems bananas to me. Like, oh, these people seceded and are actively engaged in rebellion against our government. We'll just take a flight. It's not like you can just go to Mexico, then to Cuba. Like, it was... It, you can't take a direct flight from the from Florida to Cuba, but apparently you can take a direct flight from Earth to Babylon Five, which is engaged in active rebellion.
2: And there was an implication that the religious leaders were like going through some back channels to get to the station too. Yeah, it, last episode. <laughs> so fucking stupid. Yeah.
1: Anyway. Anyway, there's uh, but tourists. it's in the B plot about Franklin, so of course it's stupid.
2: <laughs> yeah. So so there's tourists on the station who are apparently making the further interesting decision to slum it down below. Franklin returns a lost ball to the tourist kid whose mother is disgusted by the awful homeless man interacting with her child. So, lady, it is 100% fair to be disgusted by Franklin. But come on, you got to choose the right reasons. Yeah. Uh, homeless? No. Gross, gross violations of medical ethics? Yes.
1: There are so Even in this scene, there are better reasons to be freaked out. This is a weird homeless man talking to your child. That is a potentially dubious situation right there. And it's Franklin, so it's extra dubious. <laughs> like, I'm not necessarily saying that Franklin would do that. But he has no morals or medical ethics, so you can't take it off the list of potential outcomes. Like the problem isn't that he's homeless, the problem is that he's a weird vagrant that is talking to a child. Like <laughs> yeah. that seems like well, he's a vagrant, Franklin. Let's not blame all vagrants. There are plenty of well, good exactly, people that exactly,
2: exactly. This is this is my point. It's like that she's you know, like she yeah. should be worried because he's Franklin, not because he's a v- vagrant. Yeah. Let's, not, let's yeah. not malign all vagrants here. The that, that scene ends, and later he attempts to intervene in a conflict between some lurkers and just gets fucking shanked for his trouble. The duty saves, uh, refuses to help him, since he was dealing drugs at the time and doesn't want to get thrown in jail by Franklin's ex-boyfriend.
1: Uh, I have questions here. <laughs> I'm sorry, you're not getting through this summary- straight through. Uh, I'm not going to apologize again for it. And I shouldn't have the first time. One, how is it possible that nobody has shanked Franklin to this point? Because there's no way this is the first time (laughs) that Franklin has stuck his nose into a problem. That's none of his goddamn business. Two, how is it possible that this is the first time? It's not possible that this is the first time that Franklin has tried to interrupt a fight. So I have to assume that he's simply been beaten many, many times as opposed to shanked. <laughs> and three, I don't believe that anyone would not would would leave him bleeding there simply because they were dealing drugs. Like you can call 911 and walk away. Yeah. My theory is that he knows, like, oh, you're Garibaldi's boyfriend. Fuck you in particular. That's my that's <laughs> my mean, personal theory it's here. Down
0: below we don't really get any we don't get really any evidence that cops go down below. Unless they have a reason to arrest someone. Yeah. Well, that's so, why what, what I'm like, saying. It, it's, it sounds like even medical emergencies don't go there. You can't yeah. get an ambulance to, down below. Yeah.
1: Well, that's why I'm saying it's like, no, you're you're that guy that fucks the cop. Fuck you.
2: <laughs> yeah. The, I have, there are many questions with this B-plot, and we haven't even gotten to most of them. Yeah. Uh, so Franklin begins to bleed out while calling rather half heartedly for help. Uh, after some time, however, he hears a voice and sees another Franklin. This one is. This is
0: like my worst nightmare.
2: <laughs> this one is clean shaven, bathed, uh, wearing a uniform, and also not bleeding to death. Franklin 2.0 begins to taunt Shanked Franklin, saying that, I mean, he might as well just give up as he given up and run away at every other major decision point in his entire life. And Shanked Franklin is finally goaded into action by his jackass alter ego and pulls himself to his feet and toward a populated area where he is rushed to med lab.
1: I have so much to say <laughs> about this this section. I suppose I will wait. Until you're done. But I have so much to say about this.
2: Well, let's let's let me get through the summary here and then we can. Yeah. Then we can we can all discuss all the things. So Garibaldi goes to visit Franklin in Medlab, where Franklin has somehow scored a single room, despite being way less wounded than all of the people with like horrific plasma burns from the battle in the A-plot.
0: can I can I offer a theory on this? Sure. I I looked at the JMS piece for this one, and JMS like suggests that the time frame for this episode, or, or the 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 timeline for this episode, might be a little nebulous, and that the the stabbing for Franklin might have occurred before the battle. I have an alternate theory. Uh, and
2: that, or it could
0: just be preferential treatment.
2: Well, no, you, or, see, you or see, or see, nobody him has the, to be in the, the same room. As the I room have C. as all of the. You see him in the room. Well, there's like burned Mimbari outside. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay. So here's my theory. You are a doc. You're Doctor Hobbs. You know Doctor Franklin. Doctor Franklin is a a sexual deviant. B a a moral void into which. <laughs> innocence and good goes and out of which comes crime and weeping emerges <laughs> and you know that he's been trawling his ass from one end of the station to the other for the last, what, three months? Oh, so you
0: put him in isolation. No, it's like, the yes, public. you
1: put him in isolation because God knows what diseases he's going to give everybody else in Med Lab. The man <laughs> been has got to like be a weeks, walking man. disease
0: vet. It's been Whatever. like two weeks, it could be, it's it could been longer be, than that. It's been like four episodes. It's, it could have been
1: 36 hours. You have no idea what he could have picked up in, in a day and a half. I'm just Nobody's saying. Nobody's seen him for weeks. Well, yeah. In the time he's, In the time that he's been gone, they know that he has at least picked up one terminally ill woman that he grossly <laughs> misdiagnosed, <laughs> abused, slept with, and then abandoned. That's all she knows about that he's done <laughs> while he's been gone. <laughs> he was in down below, and he picked up some random terminally ill woman. God knows what I mean. Look, all I'm saying is you put him in, in in isolation because you've got a bunch of good, noble warriors for the Army of Light out here, who are half of them walking around with half their body a fucking open burn wound, and you don't want. Doctor Franklin over here, the walking STD to <laughs> cough some hybrid alien <laughs> wart disease into them and kill all your fucking war wounded. Of course, you put them in isolation. That's just good medicine and I can't good wait moral to see hygiene.
2: Is
0: going to have to edit this down.
2: Uh, alternate alternate theory is that Hobbes knows exactly. How much of a whiny bitch Franklin will be if he's not in his own room.
1: I like my theory. (laughs)
2: Um, So, anyway, uh, Franklin tells Garibaldi that he did indeed find himself, but didn't like the person who he met very much. Um, (coughs) Same. Uh, Garibaldi says that. Welcome to the
1: party, Franklin. None of us like him very much.
2: None of us like either of you very much, Franklin. And Garibaldi says that if all that Franklin needed was a short, sharp kick to the head, well, he could have provided that service. Again, we don't kick shame on this podcast, but TMI, dude, TMI. As referenced before, Sheridan checks up on Franklin, uh, who is currently helping out in med lab from a wheelchair, and offers him his job back. Franklin accepts almost immediately, and says that he can't undo his past mistakes, but he can appreciate what he has now and try to redefine himself. After Sheridan leaves, Franklin helps out a nurse, and we all cross our fingers and hope that this is the start of a new, better Stephen Franklin, free from gross medical and sexual misconduct. (laughs) No. I... I have
0: a question now, which is just now my thing of like, okay, it we we've talked about this before in, in a, uh, uh, another episode with Josie about like wrestling and I'm like which member of, B, of the B five cast would be able to give the best uh or which of the B five staff would give the best super kick
1: the best super kick, uh, and I want to sit no I'm gonna go for a black horse answer here yeah, Marcus. And I'll tell okay, you why. Yeah. Of, all the, of, of all the staff, you know that the only ones on the staff that actually watch a lot of wrestling are either Marcus or Ivanova. <laughs> and the only one of them that actually, like, spends time practicing those moves is, is Marcus.
0: Okay. And he has, because I'm, like, because of, like, Isis... Definitely not the like only people do, but he has like the young bucks hair so that he for that, like super kick. Okay. Okay. I'm good with this. This is just, I'm very into this <laughs> I, now. And, uh, I have no, I have no idea now what you're talking about,
1: friend. I don't either. I'm just running with it. Uh But I, know, I have this mental now. picture now of Ivanova and Marcus, like watching wrestling together and like Ivanova, like trying to like teach Marcus about wrestling. For the first time. And Marcus just being like, this is amazing. Uh,
2: And then and then follow that up with Marcus attempting to share this with Lanier.
0: Yes. That would be very good. I I think like Lanier would understand. understand No, he'd be horrified. As the the cultural institution it was. (laughs) No, he'd be absolutely horrified. I think he'd be initially horrified. And then once he learned that wrestling was fake, he'd be much more
2: interested in it. Yeah, um, I think it, it might be like when uh, spoilers,
0: everyone wrestling is fake.
2: <laughs> it might be like when Garibaldi uh, talks about the motorcycle to Lanier and Lanier's is like symbol of sexual prowess, you say <laughs> symbol of masculinity, you say yeah. please sign me up.
0: It's an important cultural theater of, of Earth culture. Uh, about collaborative art forms. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah.
1: Okay. I have to I'm I have to talk about Franklin's fucking talking (laughs) to himself scene. I
0: I actually kind of like it. It's a lot of fun.
1: It is a lot of fun. And it's a great scene and the actor does a fantastic job with it. But there is the scene as as art. And then there is the scene (laughs) as the story like the, the story as it is constructed. The scene as art is very good. The actor does a great job of playing against himself. I think it does a great job of like revealing, uh, it does a great job of showing the character from a different angle. Mm-hmm. That said, I think that intern from an internal standpoint, Franklin is full of shit. Uh, I don't think he runs from everything. I think he's just a user. And th- he's constructed this, Shadow self that asks him, "What do you want?" And he says, "Oh, yep, I want, <laughs> I I want to live." And so he's like, "Well, all right, then live." And
2: perhaps he should have had a alternate self that asked him, "Who are you?" Yeah, Instead. except that would imply
1: there's any redeeming value to Franklin, and there's not. That's why there's no no one asking, "Who are you?" Because there's no Vorlon. This to Franklin. He's a he, he's a, a void, a moral void.
0: But I think that's something that's like that that uh, we're g- I think we can get into this a lot more next episode when we talk about Zaha Doom. Yeah. About the the philosophies of the shadows and the vorlons mm-hmm. But I think it's more important in Franklin at that exact moment where he where he knows what he wants instead of who he is.
1: Yeah. And yeah in all seriousness he's I think the idea is that he's facing his demons. And so mm-hmm. he's facing his like shadow self. The thing is, I don't, I have actual beef with the idea that like he's just run from everything his whole life. Like, I think that's yeah. kind of horseshit.
2: Especially, I especially been, like, the, the, some of the examples I thought were decent, but like the example of like, well, you didn't want to hand over your notes on Mimbari during the war, so you burned them. And it's like, no, that was a good thing. You were
0: good. Yeah. Yeah. No, that one is, that was the one that was out of place. Like the first couple ones where it's like, you ran away from home because you didn't want to deal with an abusive father. Yeah, no, that 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 makes sense. Or, or like yeah. that's valid. Like instead of confronting him, you didn't want to do an internship, so instead you space hitchhike. Okay, yeah. that makes sense. You you didn't want to become a war criminal. Um, one of these things is not like the other. Yeah, yeah. He he, he did not make the harder choice in that situation, or like he did not take the easy route out on that one.
2: Yeah, yeah. no. I I and the I, and the other two are are also kind of valid character wise of like you know that I'm not going to fault him for for you know running away from home rather than dealing with his abusive father, but on the other hand, that means that there's a lot of Aspects of himself that he's never examined, and it, and that
0: could also be something that like maybe he judges himself for because this is all him reflecting on himself, yeah. Where he's like saying, "Well," where it's him saying, "Hey, you ran away from this instead of dealing with it."
1: Yeah, I and I get that. I think I think it's an oversimplification, and I think mm-hmm. that it it yeah. I think my my main beef is that it's an oversimplification, and it it doesn't really do justice to the character that we've seen because the character we've seen is not a character that avoids the hard problems. It's a character that thinks he's better than the hard problems that thinks he's superior in, in all things he's willing. He goes up against these hard problems and thinks he's better than them. Uh, He thinks he knows better than the stupid people's, Religion and instead gives them glue eggs. And he thinks he's better than, uh, he knows more than everybody. And like, you don't it see makes that. that
2: guy catatonic in yeah, Avalon. Yeah, exactly.
1: In Avalon, exactly. Like, yes, there are parts of his backstory that track with that whole runaway thing. But as a character, what you see in the show and like the personality you, that is described, the only part of his personality that really is like running away from something is the drug abuse. But you can also interpret that as being someone who uses – he uses the drugs, in my view, not to run away from something, but to prop up this perception of himself as being superior and being able to handle absolutely anything. Yeah. Again, this is putting aside like the – and it's not a bit. I actually do fucking hate Franklin. But like putting aside that whole thing – that's, I feel like, the vision of Franklin that we are presented with. And I do, I feel like this, like, I'm running away from everything is kind of like left field and no. a little bit of like a a post-talk justification or however you yeah. put
2: it. I, I think it has to do with essentially the show versus tell for Franklin yeah. and that the tell you – know, this particular episode speaks to the tell – Mm-hmm. but not to the show.
0: I think this is just one of those points where it's just like Franklin, where we we discussed with Ben Walkabout, where Franklin is just sort of prisoner to, like, being a side character in the show who gets elevated sometimes. Yeah. And because he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't factor into the main plot. He sort of just gets dragged along. Yeah. and I mean, it's just, it, it, it's, I think that they're, like, yeah, it's from an art perspective, this is a good scene. Like, it, it's a good B-plot. Um, but again, it's just, like, it's sort of, like, I wish there was, like, 10% more.
1: Or I, all of it less. I like kinda... In our hypothetical remake of the show, this is a plot line that is gone completely.
0: Yeah. I I think you could do this storyline in a better way. But it's also, like, have it built up as, like, maybe, like, as Franklin... Maybe if like Franklin is involved in like the Shadow Horn more intensely and ends up like suffering burnout for because of that, and we have that keyed in, and it's part of the main storyline. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's like if you tie it in better. Like I think you could do that plot line. It's just it, it's tacked on. And there's like there's a little bit of there's a little bit of key in there. Yeah. Like with like like it starts off and really in Confessions and Lamentations but it's never really given like an at-the-time justification. Here's an
1: idea. You don't include a doctor character that serves no real point except to fill B-plots. Yes. And instead you give this particular story to uh, your security officer that you make not a fascist and you give him some actual ethics and you work him too hard and you burn him out and he's already got the addiction plot there. And so you have him burn out and have to step back and examine him, examine his life and his career and his choices. Because yes. I feel like Garibaldi yeah. is much more of a person who would benefit from, from some actual fucking introspection than Franklin. Because Franklin, we haven't seen enough of his life or his choices to care about his introspection Because he's awful. Like all we know is that he makes is that he's a monster. But Garibaldi, we hate Garibaldi for being a fascist, but we have seen a lot of sides of him and a lot of moments of him that would profit from introspection.
0: Here's a left field idea that I have for like another character who could serve by this, Ivanova. Hmm. Because I think we get we get like we get throughout season three really like her refusing to stop or pause yeah and taking everything upon herself
2: and that start and that that starts to uh, I mean you've seen the start of season four and yeah. you know that she is pretty darn burned out in hour of the wolf
0: yeah and I think it's something where it's like you know it could be like you know maybe you push this plot line. Back a little bit further than the series, where I I, we know how like season four and five goes with the production and everything. But if you push that plot line back to like ivana starts taking stems the start of season four because she can't handle the pressure, or in the middle of season three because there's just so much being put on her plate and she is literally incapable of saying no to work. Yeah, I think that there. I think you could do stuff with that there, just because I don't think that she's gotten. Especially throughout season three, like, I think she's been, like, a solid stay in a lot of plots, but she hasn't really gotten a character arc.
2: Yeah, it's funny, I I kind of, with the caveats of Franklin being who he is, etc., <laughs> I actually find alternate Franklin to be interesting, because I feel like he actually is closer to the Franklin who we've seen in... In the episodes where we liked Franklin, like Confessions and Lamentations, where, like in that episode, Franklin is a raging jackass. But he's focused, he gets stuff done. Um, and I don't mind having a doctor character who's an absolute jerk. That's fine. You know, it's just the the, the romance pieces and the dubious medical ethics pieces and the etc that are all bad. But it's it's I think I think the alternate Franklin is kind of an interesting look at him. Uh one of one of my favorite pieces of this episode is when the battle ends and there's no like a lot of other, you you expect the battle to end and everybody to be like, yay, we won. And the battle ends and there's none of that. It just cuts yeah, no. straight to the ship graveyard. Yeah. And there's no like triumphant fanfare of them, of the shadows, like moving away or anything. Like the shadows move away and it cuts straight to all the destroyed ships. And it's a really interesting choice, because it really emphasizes that, like, they might have won the battle, but it was not quite a hollow victory, but woof.
0: Yeah, it had yeah, it, it had a high price. It, it's, we didn't win, it's, we survived.
2: Yeah. I also want to learn, I, I want to know more about the mimbari telepaths, because, like... <laughs> Those, uh, the new mimbari telepaths with like 5,000 stock shots. Oh my, like how many, how much recorded
0: footage do they have of these three dudes sleeping? It's got to be either
1: a lot or it's the same <laughs> shots and they just play it like in different directions at different speeds. Because <laughs> I can't tell which it is, but it's one of the two. And then that one guy at the end, it's always that one guy at the end that you're like, is he up to something shady? What's his deal? He looks weird.
2: But it's, it's, uh, I, so
1: the, the Anna Sheridan reveal.
0: Yeah. The payoff for our Chekhov snow globe. Yeah. Yeah.
1: In this day and age of like shock reveals and plot twists, I think this is one of the better ones because it's one of those things where it's seeded throughout the previous couple of seasons that she exists and they have this, he has this ex-wife and there's no real hint that she's going to come back. But at the same time,
2: there's no like, body.
1: There's no body. Yeah. It's an obvious thing to happen in retrospect, but you never see it coming. I I think it's executed extremely well. And her snarky ass, like, hello, you know, get the fuck out of my my bedroom look at Delenn when she opens that door is just hits like a ton of bricks uh it's very good and man that's it's just executed perfectly
2: and and Delenn's look of shock and horror yeah too
1: yeah no absolutely it's great uh i think it's as a surprise twist goes uh the fact that this is not like the end of the season is banana pants
0: yeah. Yeah, I mean I it, it, it's more it, it, it's it's the twist you pull to introduce the end of the season or the end of the season problem. Yeah. Which it it's a really good one. And the fact that like Delenn knows who it is and everything is just so good. Yeah. Because she knows all the she instantly knows all of the ramica- ramifications for what she is. Yeah. Yeah.
1: The fact that yeah, exactly. Uh and next episode we'll talk about what that means. But yeah, Delenn knows what she is. Not as, not just like she's Anna Sheridan, but like what she is, what she's been. Yeah. And it has every reason to be horrified and how this complicates her relationship with John uh, is very good and is played very well.
2: Yep. But back on the telepaths, briefly, I'm wondering, like, do the Mimbari telepaths have to have line of sight on the shadows to do their, like, jamming thing? Or do they have some sort of HUD? Or what?
0: Apparently they don't, because their eyes are closed the entire time. Yeah,
2: so, like, that himbari telepath seem to be way farther ahead than or maybe it just works differently. human telepath or something yeah, yeah that's
0: yeah may- because it's like maybe maybe it's just like a thing where it's like maybe it's a thing about like field telepathy
2: but they've also had a thousand years at least to yeah but I'm just tossing out ideas yeah. here
0: for like how for how it works because we never see how they're portrayed on screen yeah um like it, it it's like, because the only time we've ever seen them before is that they were presented as purely a defensive option. Yeah. So maybe it's something that like that they're they're good broadcast telepaths. Maybe that's something that like Minbari are fo- more focused on. Not like the invasiveness of other species, but like broadcasting instead. Quite possibly. So they're ve- so like when you've got three of them working together, they can jam very well. Yeah. Um, because they're good at broadcasting stuff, not necessarily finding things.
2: I could see them also having more of a focus on synergy between telepaths than mm-hmm. um, Psychor would promote. <laughs> <laughs> Marcus telling
0: Ivanova, Oh, yeah. My words aren't adequate to the burn of my heart. Is listen, <sighs> I love, I love me this. Dumb boy. <laughs> and the fact that he is really hopelessly in love with her is just really good. I, I'm very scared for how this is going to turn out. Because both Marcus and Ivanova do not have happy ending energy. And together, it's gonna. It's like, I just know this is going to end badly.
2: <laughs> I, I just love the moment where Ivanova says offhand, like... You know, one of these days, I'd like to be stationed somewhere with, you know, a big four-poster bed. And Marcus is like, I like four-poster beds. (laughs) She's just like, fuck off, Marcus. Yeah.
0: (laughs) I love how the fact that, like, Ivana is exactly the type of person to take all those little triangle pillows and make a bed out of them. Yeah. (laughs) It's so fucking funny. Uh,
2: Also, I have a side question. Does everyone on this station, other than Garibaldi, wax their chests? Sure, why not? It's the twenty fourth century. <laughs> you can la- you can get like laser treatment for that now.
0: Maybe. <sighs> Who knows?
1: I hope so. Like that's that would be funny if that were true. That like that's the fashion is waxed chests.
2: <laughs> because clearly, clearly, both wait. Franklin... I've got
1: this. No, I know why. Why? Because Jakar the sexy chess <laughs> piece the car
0: started to start an entire movement
1: i think that everybody wants to fuck a narn
0: <laughs> and and those,
1: they're just those sexy chess piece the sexiness of 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 the narn torso has inspired humanity to aspire to hairlessness on the chest but garibaldi he's a rebel he's a loner dottie he-
2: He's a something. Certainly. Uh,
1: well, yes. I mean, I mean he's a fascist pig. <laughs> he's he's a borderline xenophobic and uh he doesn't go in for that shaved thing. <laughs> uh not that he's not going to, you know.
2: I mean, he's he's a proud he's Franklin, a proud Italian man.
1: Yeah. Exactly.
2: I bet you he's never. You know, we don't
1: need to spec. I feel like we don't need to speculate any further on Garibaldi's romantic habits. I feel like that's a that's a, that's a road pa- that's a road to hell paved and just just a road to hell. That's all. It's just a road to hell. <laughs> we can just end. That's that, that's fine. We're done with that. I'm done. <laughs> yeah. I feel like we, I feel like that's the that's the place to end it right there. Just, yeah. <laughs> Just cut the episode right there.
2: <laughs> uh, do, do we want to talk about um, the the Delen relationship ritual thing? Because I didn't really cover that oh, that yeah. much in the summary.
1: Because that...
2: um, I figured we would talk about it, you know, in the discussion piece.
1: God, it's weird.
0: It,
2: I mean, it's basically it's like it's the idea that like
0: the woman watches the man sleep. Lord knows how it is for. Other anything other than heterosexual yeah. men and barry relationships does the does the bottom watch the top sleep how does that go Um I'm putting that all aside for the moment and I'm not going to make any more jokes on that one specific thing we're gonna I'm just gonna go through the rest of the explanation here while the while the man sleeps his he he, he removes the face that he puts on for the day and the woman can see his true face if she finds that appealing they continue the relationship if not she cuts it off. It be not, clear, not the clear to be but clear
2: here, It Yeah, being the relationship. The relationship.
1: I mean, there, there's a lot of things she could cut off while he's sleeping. Let's. Yeah, um, it was the 90s. That I, that was a relevant the, joke. So
0: it's supposed to like JMS has said that like the implication of the scene is not that like. It's supposed to be about like cutting off the dick. It's supposed to be like no. It's a funny bit that's caused by Dillen not knowing the word for the translation and John jumping to conclusions. Yeah, um, yeah. And I'm just like, okay, it's, it's a funny little bit. I, um, I think it's a cute ritual. Um, I want to just assume that gay people on Minbari, it's it's a mutual thing. You both do it.
2: I'd love to. I'd love to see it explained. And I feel like this is something where if it were redone today, it would probably be explained as like something that goes both ways that each partner yeah. watches the other, you know, takes some portion of nights and watches the other, that it would be a mutual thing.
0: Which I think is really cute. And it's like, it's a fun thing with like Minbari and like full knowledge of the other, like it, 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 of the Minbari pursuit for understanding. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And it's, it's also, I I like the thing of, you know, for the person sleeping, you know, it's you have to have a willingness to be vulnerable around your potential partner. Yeah. Which is cute. Yeah, it's interesting. I I
1: like that point that it has a it the way it ties into the broader Minbari ethos of understanding. That makes a lot of sense. I don't love the idea of it generally. I, I, I don't like the heteronormity of it is yeah that of it can
0: bite a dick yeah. <laughs> um
1: but i like the I, I do like the the way that it ties into the broader themes of of minbari society and i do think it could be easily it doesn't have to be a heteronormative it, yeah it, it's unnecessary yeah. it's
0: a cute idea brewing by heteronormative there you go heteronormative yeah uh, but yeah it's it's a fun little thing i i think there there is a to be real like I can count on the number, I can count on like, it is like, I've had, you know, a number of relationships, the amount of people that I would actually stay up an entire evening for like, to do that, you've really gotta like that person Yeah, yeah. <laughs> especially like I, no, I can't do that anymore for anybody <laughs> I'd really have to want to do it <laughs>
2: Yeah. Although the the implication is that Mimbari need far less sleep than humans do.
0: Yeah. Th- yeah. That that too. Um. I'm pretty sure that that shadow scout vessel I've seen in like in my drawer is a hair clip. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's really it's just a hair clip. Yeah. yep, <laughs> Yep. Um. I I just want to point that out there. Yeah.
2: I love the like gray council vr room i feel like it's a really cool way to have people commanding a space battle and like being able yeah. to see all around you i i wish that there had been more kind of heads-up display sorts of things of like showing like movement vectors and stuff like that but that's just me i thought it- i thought it was real cool though yeah yeah I feel like I would get very motion sick in that room though.
0: <laughs> I feel like if it's done today you abstract it a little bit like you get like the like cool little holographic representations of the chips. It, it feels like it, that would instead it would be like something you'd see on the expanse. Yeah. Yeah. Like you wouldn't get like just like the the straight up video. Where it's yeah. just
2: like the green screen. <laughs> but I thought I think it's like pretty innovative for the time.
0: Yeah. Um I don't think there's any interesting guest actors in this episode. Apart from the homeless couple and the stabby the stabbing folks um it's it's actually a guest light episode
2: there's also there's also that one nurse um who's in the room when Garibaldi is talking to Franklin and Garibaldi is like, ha ha, Franklin's cranky must be getting back to normal, and the nurse gives this like long suffering humorless laugh and then goes <laughs> out of the room yeah. <laughs> It's like that that person is seeing some shit
1: <laughs> yeah yeah for sure
0: all right everybody well you're at z minus one episode or p minus one if you will next time you're going to be covering the season three finale which is episode 22 zaha doom until next time jump the babylon project is an independent production all views expressed on the show are our own recording